upset the apple cart very possibly elect their candidate no Welcome back to the Facts About PACs podcast. I'm Michaela Isler, Matt PACs executive director, and I'm joined by my co-host, Adam Belmar, who is joining us today from an undisclosed location. This is true. My exact location today is undisclosed. However, I can say that I remain on the eastern seaboard of the United States. That is good to know. And clearly, uh, you've secured a high-quality recording location, I see. You do sound good, like studio quality. That's kind of you to say uh, the studio facilities here are top notch. But Michaela, really, that's that's all I can say for now. Understood. Uh, you know, we have some important ground to cover, though, today, Adam, specifically what everyone in the Employee Funded and Business Trade Association PAC space should know about the No Labels Party. We've been hearing a little bit more about it uh, in the news recently and its campaign plan for 2024. It's intriguing. Yeah, Michaela. I mean, the No Labels Party is attempting to qualify for the ballot in as many states as possible, right up to 50, and has already done so in Alaska, Arizona, Colorado, and Oregon. And coming up in a minute, we'll get the Ellis insight on No Labels with none other than Jim Ellis. The Facts About PACs podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NAP activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community. And today's episode is brought to you by Access Marketing Services. From design to podcasts, from infographics to digital, work with the team that leading PACs and government affairs programs call when they need results. Access Marketing Services. Well, thanks, Adam, and thanks to Access Marketing Services for their continued sponsorship of this podcast. You know, Adam, we had another lunch yesterday with our friend Russ Schrefert from Strategic Partners and Media talking about ESG issues and, you know, all of the issues that our PAC managers have to continue to deal with as it relates to some of these social issues. And we are moving into, it's hard to believe that it's almost summer, but we we do have a couple of Let's Talk series uh, coming up on May 17th and in June 6th. But then I'm really excited. We kind of teased this out last week with our summer soiree, Adam on June 15th. Yeah, I admitted that I didn't know how to spell soiree and I still haven't figured it out yet, but I'm still planning to attend. So let's dive in uh, here to get us all up to speed on the No Labels Party and, and really what it means for the 2024 campaign cycle is Jim Ellis, the maestro of identifying and analyzing emerging trends in campaigns and elections. So welcome back to the podcast, Jim. Well, Michaela, thank you so much, Adam. It's great to be with you. And I'm in Alexandria, Virginia, just to put the record straight. So. <laughs> no bunker, you know. No bunkers, no. Okay. Well, Jim, you were the first person I thought of because, as Adam mentioned, we're hearing a lot more about the No Labels Party and trying to get on the ballot in a number of these states. So let's just back up and get ahead of steam going into this topic. No Labels has been around for about a decade or so, and they describe their mission in terms of, quote, working to combat the anger and extremism consuming our politics. You know, their achievements include the creation of the House Problem Solvers Caucus, one that here at NAPAC we've worked closely with. And now they're laying the groundwork for a quote, potential independent unity ticket in 2024. So who is leading No Labels today, Jim, and what are the specifics of their 2024 plan? Well, the the co-chairman, the national co-chairman for the organization are former Senator Joe Lieberman, 
who of course was the 2000 vice presidential nominee for the Democratic Party under Al Gore. And for the uh, the Republican is uh, former Maryland governor, Larry Hogan. So it, it is a pretty broad organization. And the thing that impresses me more is the state chairman they have. There, those people are not particularly well-known names. They may be in their particular state. But if you look at, at how many they have, I mean, they've really expanded to almost every state being represented by a local state chairman, if you will, suggesting that there are a large number of people involved. And this is more than just, I think, a fly-by-night independent type thing that we've seen so many of over the past decades. Um, and, I, and I think the money they have behind them, uh, which is substantial millions of dollars that they've raised, uh, this this could be an interesting situation. I know the Democrats are quite nervous about having a no-labels candidate or ticket on the ballot. And, you know, I think it kind of cuts both ways, though. It depends on the state. I can see why they'd be nervous in Arizona. And they have actually, the Arizona Democratic Party has actually filed suit to get their status, the no-label status, which has qualified as a political party, in Arizona, they're trying to get them removed, and they and there's two reasons they claim that they should be disqualified. Now, the Democratic Secretary of State in Arizona certified them, but they're saying they don't have two requirements. They haven't filed as a political party with the Federal Election Commission, and they haven't disclosed their donors. And under Arizona election law, both of those are requirements. So they're suing to say that they should be eliminated as a political party. It seems to me those two things are pretty easy to rectify. My guess is no labels will do that and they'll be on the ballot in Arizona. But that's the length that the Democrats are concerned that there are enough voters in a place like that that would take votes away from Joe Biden and allow Trump to carry the state. So they're worried there. I think the Republicans are going to be worried in Ohio where they have submitted their qualification and they're now verifying if they have the proper number of legal signatures to qualify for the ballot in Ohio. So sometime in the summer, maybe in June or July, we'll have an announcement there whether they have qualified for the ballot in Ohio or not. So places like Oregon and Colorado, I don't think they're going to have much of an effect at all. Uh, I don't think Biden would be threatened in either of those states in a close election. Alaska could definitely cut against the Republicans because remember in the convoluted system that they have in Alaska now, where it's a top four qualified for the general election, and then it goes to rank choice voting if nobody gets 50% or more. Well, if you look at how Donald Trump has performed there, he's carried the state in both of his elections, but it was with 51 and I believe 50.3% of the vote. Now, the Democrats were down in the low 40, so it wasn't particularly close. But the key is you would have to go over 50%. Now, Maine would be the same way because they have rank choice voting, and that second congressional district is one that Trump carries, even though the state goes for the Democrat. But they now he would have to get over 50%. And a no-labels candidate, that could definitely affect him, and that would be important for them. So I think no-labels would cut both ways, and it depends on what state. So, Jim, if I'm no-labels in the parlance of the kids, you're telling me I still got a shot. They could be 
an upset situation maker in a presidential election. And you also said something that I want to really key in and try and get you to unpack. How much money do they have? They say they have $75 million cash on hand with an original objective of getting on the ballot that they are pursuing vigorously. So there is a lot of very close votes going on in so many elections up and down the ballot. We don't know what the prevailing issues will be in the waning months and days of a 2024 presidential election. Pull out a little bit. You've given us the states and I want you to keep going, but people are on the fence and looking at a redo here. And I'm wondering, is this the time a third party candidate in the new age really does upset the apple cart? Upset the apple cart, very possibly elect their candidate. No. Remember, the the most serious independent we've had in recent decades was Ross Perot in 1992, and he received 19% of the popular vote, which was actually a good showing. And he did keep both Bill Clinton, who got 42%, and George H.W. Bush, who got 37 well below 50%. But how many electoral votes did Ross Perot win? And the answer was zero. And I think something similar like uh, would happen with a no labels candidate. But could they throw the election to one or the other candidates? Yeah, I think they could. Could they elect their own candidate? I doubt it. What they might be able to do, however, it, it, it's possible they could win, actually win outright a Senate election. And that would be in Arizona. So if Kirsten Cinema decides to run and they agree that she runs on the no labels ticket, and becomes a no-labels candidate, as opposed to on the independent ballot line there, they could elect a senator if she wins that election. My guess is that happens because it's in both their interest. I mean, it certainly would be in no-labels interest to have a person of stature like Senator Cinema on their label. And particularly if she wins, they'd have a U.S. senator with their label. I think that would be extremely important for them. But it's important for cinema, too, for a logistical reason. An independent in Arizona obviously doesn't have to go through a primary. But what they do have to do is submit 40,000 registered voter signatures on petitions in various counties to qualify that candidate for the statewide ballot. So she would have to go through that process and would have until July of 2024 to do that. If she was the member or a, a party candidate, so if she is the no labels candidate, that signature requirement drops to less than 1300 So you could see from a logistical and campaign expense side, it would be to her advantage to run on a political party label. And I think that's a nice marriage for the two of them and would be surprised, frankly, if it doesn't happen. Michaela, you are our state politics expert on this show, having worked in many states. What's your take on this? How do PAC managers begin to even think about this? Well, I was just, that's where my brain was going. And it's so many of our PACs, you know, really their bylaws even state that they really only support incumbent candidates. But is there an opportunity here to expand beyond just incumbents? Uh, you know, I think that's going to be a real shift in sort of the campaign contribution criteria and how they, you know, vet and analyze candidates. I think as it relates to this 
I just think this sort of thing, Jim, with the no labels, it seems like both sides are very nervous about this. I think some centrist Democrats believe the no label strategy will serve only to weaken President Biden and the party. I've also heard that this is really just a Trump backed organization, which I know has been vehemently denied. So how do you see it? I think it hurts. It can hurt both sides depending upon where they are. And in in heavily in states that lean to the Democrats, I think it hurts Biden. In states that lean to the Republicans, it would probably hurt Trump. So I think it cuts both ways. I, re- I really do. I, I would think both sides are nervous about well, this. All yeah, politics is local. I mean, that it goes back to really that. And, and I think it's going to be a case by case basis, as you've said. What polling have you seen on this and, and what trends, if any, should we all be aware of? I haven't actually seen too much polling in terms of like an independent. They throw out people like Liz Cheney. Uh, I, I don't think somebody like that is really going to work. Um, I, I would think they would need some type of no name that's not a politician. And then that person might be able to draw to draw a better vote. Um, but uh, typically your independent isn't going to get that many votes. I mean, as I said, Ross Perot got 19% nationally. In some states, I think in Maine, I think he was close to 40 so again, it would depend on the place, depend on the state. But the the third party, a legitimate third party candidate, like we may have with no labels, is nothing more than a spoiler. And how that particular candidate spoils the presidential race is, I think, very much up in the air. One man's spoiler is another man's secret weapon. And I think that's kind of when you look at their website and you read their language, they set up this if-then situation where we're monitoring. We are trusting that things will come out in a good place, but we're preparing in case they don't. What's on the horizon? Where does the Ellis Insight corner look around go? Well, I'm looking at a lot of the Senate races now. We're seeing some action really pop up. We saw Senator Ben Cardin announce that he was not going to seek re-election. And just on a side, when he completes this term, Ben Cardin will be in elective office in Maryland for 58 consecutive years with his time. He spent 20 years in the state legislature, 20 years in the U.S. House, and will end with 18 years in the U.S. Senate. So it's a remarkable record. And now we're seeing already people start to make some moves. I think we'll see a very active and very highly competitive Democratic primary. Congressman David Trone is already saying he's going to run and would spend as much as $50 million of his own money on that race. So he's going to be a key candidate. We'll see if Congressman Raskin decides to run. You've got the the uh, Prince County, uh, Prince George's County executive, Angela also Brooks. She's a, a, almost a sure candidate. And we've already had a Montgomery County councilman announce uh, for for the seat. So we're going to have a big Democratic primary in Maryland that will be uh, hotly contested. Then you have the the big three, as I would call them, the states that you really have to watch. In terms of a change in party control, West Virginia, Ohio, and Montana, and those three Democratic seats that the Republicans are going to go after in states that their nominee should easily carry in the general election. So those come right up to mind. Nevada could come into play if the Republicans come up with a decent candidate, which they haven't done so far. And the best thing for the Republicans in this situation, and remember, they only need two seats to take an outright majority, is they really don't have much to defend. They only have to defend 11 seats. And I guess right now you would say Texas is their most competitive, and that's not really going to be that competitive. They do have the candidate 
that they wanted as of this week, which is Congressman um, Colin Alrod. And if he uh, so he is officially going to run against Ted Cruz. He's the best they can come up with. But Texas in a presidential year, uh, good luck with that. And every two years, you know, we hear the same story about Texas and it comes out the same way. And every two years, it's, oh, the Democrats are excited. They have a shot in Texas. They can at some point take a, a, a win in Texas. Remember, there's 29 statewide offices in Texas, counting the judges, and they have zero. And they have had zero for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, every, two, every two years, it's they have good candidates and the Hispanic vote is getting so much bigger that they can now carry a statewide election. And at the end of the day, they lose between eight and 12 points. And, and I think the same thing is going to happen again. And especially, and they got problems now with the Hispanic vote. So as cities like Dallas and Houston become more liberal, it's being countered actually for the Republicans with their strong, much stronger performance in South Texas among the Hispanic vote. So I, I still think the Democrats are out of the mix in Texas, although Colin Allred gives them a very credible candidate against Ted Cruz. But beyond that, that's probably it. I mean, Rick Scott in Florida, I, I don't see really him being in big trouble. And that's it. I mean, the rest of them are rock solid red states. That's the biggest advantage the Republicans have because they can be totally on offense. So a process bonus question for you here at the end of the podcast, Mr. Jim Ellis. And I ask this with all due respect as her legacy in the Senate has been nothing less than phenomenal. But as we look at California and the declining health of the senior senator there, is there anything that you would key for us from a process perspective about how that might turn in if she were to resign or affect electoral politics in California? I think she's been treated very shabby. As you said, you know, she's really an icon of the Democratic Party. She is the longest serving Democrat in the Senate, the current Senate, uh, elected originally in 1992. And, you know, she has had a major career and she has been an icon not only of the Democratic Party, but of the Senate. And for her to be treated so badly by her own party, basically just pushing her aside and now trying to push her out the door, uh, I, I, I think is... Uh, very bad form. And, uh, you know, she's saying she's not going to resign. So it's a real problem for the Democrats because now you now you see Joe Manchin all of a sudden starting to vote with the Republicans as opposed to just talk. Because normally he votes with the Democrats but talks like a Republican. But now he realizes he's got to vote like a Republican. With Jim Justice, the governor of the state, running against him, poll just came out and Manchin's only at 29% against Jim Justice, who was at 43. Um, therefore, without Feinstein, and this is why the Democrats are making such a big push to get her out so that Governor Newsom can appoint a Democrat for that seat, is because they're starting to lose some votes now. And they just don't have the margin. And then they have problems, obviously, with Senator Fetterman. Senator Blumenthal, you know, broke his leg there. So he's had problems. Senator Casey, the other senator from Pennsylvania, was out because he had prostate surgery. So they've had some real problems with their their conference from a health standpoint. Um, it's getting better for them, but the the Feinstein problem is 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 a bit of a problem. And then they still have to treat Senator Cinema with kid gloves. So it's it's kind of a nightmare for Senator Schumer to uh, be able to manage the Senate and get the votes he needs out with so many members 
with health problems, with mansion, with political problems, and cinema being an honest-to-God independent. Well, there you have it. The Ellis Insight with Jim Ellis. Jim, thanks for being back with us on the Facts About PAX podcast and sharing your insights with us. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm happy to come back anytime. And thanks to everyone downloading and sharing this podcast. Subscribe and meet us right back here next week.